and welcome to our interactive insights podcast series. Following on from our last episode on wills, we're going to take a look at enduring powers of attorney. I'm Emma Smith and I am joined by Rachel Scroggy from our private client team. Hi Emma. I suppose we'll start with what is an enduring power of attorney? So an enduring power of attorney is much like an ordinary power of attorney in that it allows you to transfer the authority of someone to act on your behalf for a specific purpose. Um, So the only difference between an enduring power of attorney and a power of attorney is essentially the first word enduring in that an enduring power of attorney lasts after you have lost capacity. So an enduring power of attorney is a document that allows someone to act on your behalf when you lack capacity in the event that you do lack capacity. Um, It ensures that you can appoint someone that you trust, someone that you know and who knows you to look after your finances and um, other things as well, simpler things such as phoning your telephone company or the rates office on your behalf because these days you can't really talk to anybody unless you're the named account holder. So it allows in the event that you know you do lack capacity that someone that you trust can speak to those different bodies and those different agencies on your behalf and that they can look after those things for you in the event that you do lack capacity because it's a very stressful time and it's important then to have somebody who knows what they can do and somebody who has the ability to do things for you that that you need taken care of. Um, Rachel, who should make an insurance power of attorney and when is the right time, if ever, to make an insurance power of attorney? I think that everybody should make an enduring power of attorney. Um, I know everybody will think I would say that, of course. <laughs> but an enduring power of attorney, I believe, is a great insurance policy. You can make it at any time, at any age. Really, nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, when we talk about lacking mental capacity, I think that people automatically assume that it's in the case of, say, a diagnosis of dementia or of Alzheimer's. But an enduring power of attorney can come into place much earlier than that. If there's an accident that happens or something that is unforeseen that results in somebody being unable to look after their affairs, that way an enduring power of attorney can be registered with the court and it allows then for someone else to deal with those affairs on your behalf. So I think as soon as you own property or you know as soon as you have a family, it's definitely something that you should be thinking about because it makes the lives of those around you much easier if anything such as that were to happen. And I suppose a lot of people would be wondering, well, if I do give the power to deal with my assets to somebody else, can the attorney do something like sell my property if I lost capacity? So generally what happens is there are different restrictions that you can put onto your power of attorney. You can allow someone to act jointly or jointly and severally. You can allow the attorney to act with regards to all of your property and affairs or to act with general authority on yeah. your behalf with regarding all of your affairs. Or you can restrict that power. So you could say, you know, I don't want the attorney to be able to deal with my house. I only want them to be able to deal with my bank accounts. Yeah. However, Generally, I think people in that instance, I suppose you are preparing for a case in which you don't have any capacity. So it makes sense to give a loved one the power to look after all of your affairs. Um, And generally that does include the property. However, I think that people need to be aware that it doesn't allow someone to just go ahead and, you know, to sell your property whenever they feel the time has come. if there is a, a desire to sell a property, for example, if funds are needed to pay for care or it's just a burden that the family can't look after, there will have to be different checks and balances that are carried out yes. in order 
to make sure that the property should be sold. So, for example, say you are resident in a care home and you're lacking capacity, the house is sitting, it's empty, it's it's too much of a burden for your family to look after. Your attorney cannot turn around and just say, tomorrow I'm going to put this property on the market. They have to ask the court, can they do so? Yes. And at that stage, the court will require... First of all, they may require documentation from a doctor or from the care home that you're residing at to confirm that there's no chance that you will ever return home. And only when they have that authority and only when they are sure that you're never returning to that property, then the property will be able to be sold. But it's important to remember as well that in the enduring power of attorney, when the attorney signs that document they're signing, that they will act as your attorney for solely for your benefit. Yeah. And so even if the property is sold and there is a balance proceeds of that sale, that money will be used for your benefit um, at the end of the day and the court will ensure that that, that is done. So yeah. I think it um, just touched briefly there, Rachel, on uh, your attorneys acting jointly um, or severally. Um, some people might want to appoint um, two attorneys. Do you want to just explain the difference between giving the attorneys the chance to act jointly or act jointly and separately? Yeah, sure. So I think it just really depends. A lot of people would just prefer to have one attorney. Others like to appoint two. Um, sometimes you see three or four people being appointed as attorneys. Um, I feel sometimes parents don't like to leave anybody out, so they yes. appoint all of their children to act sort of jointly. I think there's just practical considerations, really, when you're appointing attorneys. Um, you'll find that some people maybe want to appoint uh, two attorneys in Belfast and one attorney maybe in America. And from a practical point of view, you know, that's not really a sensible thing to do. Yeah. In that instance, you would be wanting to appoint the children jointly and severally so that the attorneys in Belfast can act you know, on your behalf, maybe for more minor things and then yes. everybody together can make decisions for more important things. Yeah. Um, but for example, as we were talking about selling a property, if there is an attorney in Canada, that attorney will have to sign contracts yeah. and transfer dates and things. So it's thinking about it practically. Also, you find that a lot of um, spouses will want to appoint their spouse to be an attorney and maybe with the help of a child yes. um, obviously as people get older it's harder to um, take on the responsibility of looking after another person's affairs especially with the emotional turmoil of going through a spouse losing capacity so I do think in that sort of instance it's great to have a child there or a niece a nephew somebody who can support you during that time um, because it can be stressful. And I mean, banks and these different agencies are not easy to deal with and they don't make life easy. So it's good to have as much support as you can when you do become an attorney. Um, I suppose then for somebody who does have an insurance power of attorney, that person may wonder, well, how does that power to deal with my affairs transfer to the attorney? Yeah, so when you have an insurance power of attorney, uh, you're known as the donor. And the idea is that when the donor begins to lose capacity, the enduring power of attorney is registered. So what happens when you sign an enduring power of attorney here in the, our office is that we give you a copy and we keep the original and we store it in our strong room, much like you would store a will. The original then, if you lose capacity, is lodged with the Office of Care and Protection in the High Court of Belfast. There's also a process for registration that has to take place. First of all, you are personally served with a notice of service essentially. It's a document that would come to you, would be served on you personally and to let you know that your insurance power of attorney was going to be registered. 
The idea behind that is that if you're given this letter that says your enduring power of attorney is going to be registered with the High Court, if you had capacity, you would look at this letter and you would say, oh, what? You know, this doesn't seem right. And you would contact your solicitor or you'd say to a family member, you know, somebody's trying to activate this power of attorney. This is strange. And you would get to the bottom of that. But generally what happens you'll find is that when you're served with this notice, you don't have capacity and you don't really take any notice of the letter. In addition, four members of your family are also served with this notice of service. Yeah. So for example, say you have appointed your spouse to be your attorney, um, but you also have a brother and a sister and you have two children. The idea is that your brother, your sister and your two children will also be notified that the enduring power of attorney is going to be registered. Again, that allows them the opportunity that if they don't believe the enduring power of attorney should be registered, gives them the opportunity to contact the court, to contact their solicitor and to raise a concern about this. Um, at that point then, the court gives um, relatives and yourself a month to come forward and say, you know, this is strange, this shouldn't be happening. Yep. And if there are no objections, then the power is registered and it's stamped at the High Court and then it's given to the attorney and the attorney then can proceed to act as your attorney. So you can see that there are a lot of safeguards there to ensure that the power is not registered when it shouldn't be. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's linking back into the reference to checks and balances that you'd mentioned earlier, Rachel. There is plenty of checks and balances in place to make sure that people don't abuse the power. Yeah, I do feel sometimes people are reluctant. And um, when they first hear about an injury and power of attorney, they have a lot of questions. Um, but it is just reassuring to know that there is a process in place and the court are very much in tune to the different sort of abuses of power that can happen and they do all that they can in their control to ensure that this doesn't happen. What happens if somebody loses capacity and they, they don't have an enduring power of attorney? If you lose capacity and you don't have an enduring power of attorney, there is a way to ensure that someone can look after your financial affairs as well. It's known as the process of controllership. The problem with controllership, however, is that it is a process that can take a very long time and it's also very expensive. It's very stressful because I imagine at this time, you know, you have a loved one who is going through something, you know, they're, they're lacking capacity. They don't know where all of their bank accounts are. They may not know all of their assets. And essentially, because when you make an enduring power of attorney, you have the power to appoint someone that you trust. It takes away the need to get into all the nitty gritty of where your accounts are, how much money is in what account, what land you own, what policies you have. But because that sort of trust and that actual appointment of someone is taken out of the question and someone is volunteering to become another's attorney, the court has to know that this person knows you, that this person you know, has an understanding of your finances. And so it's a much more sort of strenuous and careful application that has to be carried out. There also has to be a medical certificate that needs to be completed by a doctor. This also will generally have to be prepared by a doctor, a private doctor. So there's further costs in having, you know, an examination to ensure that you have not got any capacity at this stage. Um, and then of course you have the actual application stage that generally does take months. Whereas with an enduring power of attorney, you can be satisfied that the application will be returned within about eight weeks, 68 weeks. But with the controllership application, you're talking maybe six months. Yeah. 
So yeah, it's just, it's a lot more stressful. And I just would say that if you have the ability to get an enduring power of attorney done, it's definitely something to really think about because at the end of the day, it just makes life that wee bit easier for your loved ones at a difficult time. I think that's all really sensible, practical advice, Rachel. And of course, if you do have any questions, please feel free to get in touch with a member of our team. Thank you for listening and please check back on our social media channels for details of the next episode in the series.